Welcome to The Alchemy of Business Show with your host, Steve Rogers. The Alchemy of Business Show is a podcast that mixes practical, actionable business solutions with soulful insights for anyone seeking deeper meaning in their lives and greater success in their work. Steve will be featuring purpose-driven leaders from all walks of life and getting insight into their journeys from failures to triumphs. So tune in to transition, transform, and evolve in every dimension of your business and life. And now your host of the Alchemy of Business show, Steve Rogers. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in or viewing in on the Alchemy of Business show. We are looking to always focus on helping people make wiser decisions, creating greater profits in their life and business, and also having higher purpose. And today, our guest is going to be covering that and more, and many of the topics that probably have not yet been covered on the Alchemy of Business show. And you may also very soon be recognizing his voice because the lead-in that you just did, actually one of the other many talents that this gentleman has is doing voiceovers and a lot of media stuff. So his voice was just on my lead-in to my show. But this, you're going to meet him in just a second. We have Mr. Joshua T. Berglund on the show today in the house. He is considered the world's mayor, a media disruptor, producer a shock jock evangelist. I don't usually say that very often. A shock jock evangelist and author. Joshua, aka the world mayor, he's a voice for the voiceless in a driven to, he's driven really to elevate passion and purpose and mission in other people's lives. And he does it in a really unique, different, sometimes controversial way. He's the chairman of the Live Mana World Foundation and Live Mana Network, the the shock jock evangelist. I challenge you to say that three or four times. An international number one best-selling author of the book, Devil Inside Me. Also a producer and a filmmaker. I watched some of the film of this book that he did that's now also in the video format, which is powerful. And he's also an expert in the future of media. And he loves supporting others and helping make their dreams come true. So let's welcome Joshua to the show. Hey, my man. How, good to see you. Good to see you. The tables are turned. You've helped me uh, behind the scenes on some of my stuff, and you've been a voiceover, and you've also uh, done an engineer on a show or two. And I think on my very first show, you actually interviewed me for my segment. So welcome on a new turn of the table today. So uh, welcome. I'm honored to be here. Well, thanks. Well, you have a very interesting background. So let's just jump into this. So number one, how do you get the title of the world's mayor? Let's start there. <laughs> well, it originally started when I was living in San Diego and I was walking around, it was five o'clock in the morning. I was walking around Little Italy and I just felt my spirit like I was doing, you know, saying my gratitude out loud. And I was just so grateful to be there because of where I'd, I'd been homeless right before I moved to San Diego and the home I got, all of it. But the community of San Diego meant so much to me. And I was just so grateful for everything. I was like, I'm going to run for mayor of this place. And so I went on my show later that day and I was like, I'm running for mayor. And I and so people just immediately started calling me the mayor. I had no idea that my mom called me that as a child or said I was going to be the mayor one day. And long story short, after digging around and talking to different people, they were advise me, why don't you have a global mission? Why, why do you want to get stuck in one place? And I was like, well, screw it. I'll just be the world's mayor then. <laughs> and so that's how it happened. But the thing is, is the the mayor name and world's mayor has really nothing to do with me because what a mayor's responsibility is to elevate everyone around them, to position them to where they can be great. And that is my philosophy on life. But more importantly, because I know one man can't get it done by himself, is to inspire other people to have the mindset of being a world's mayor. So that's really what it's about. But I do have a vision 
that the United Nations will give me an award one day, officially calling me the world's mayor. I love it. Well, putting it out, I know you're big on setting intention, affirmations, the power of thought, think and grow rich, anything the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. So I will be uh, glad to see you get that honor and that award. Thanks. So your path has not always been, I mean, the, the times I've met you, you always dress up, show up, you always look nice, you're in a, a tie or a jacket or yes, sir, no, sir. You're always Mr. Polished. And when I originally met you years ago, which I didn't connect the dots until we had an, a, another uh, out of the blue meeting, but you and I had met at a conference yeah. many years ago. And then when I was starting my own, my own podcast show and getting involved with some of the other distribution networks, you got referred to me to do some work on voiceover and different things within networks. So uh, in creating that, you know, people would see you and say, oh, this guy looks like he's polished, got it all together, has a great voice, uh, has a great radio voice, has a great podcast voice. And that's all true. And with that all being true, you've also had other days that have not been as bright and looking, I'm sure there are days you haven't looked as dapper as you look today in past years with some of the challenges you've had. Uh, you and I had things in common with having alcohol addiction and uh, came drinking alcohol about 19 years ago. But there are many a days that I didn't look as polished as I might today with my jacket and my, my shirt and my glasses on if I was hung over and having to go into work that day. I'm so glad I don't have that anymore. But you had those days as well, and not just with alcohol, but you, you've had a life that has been filled with various forms of um, challenges in your life rooted, rooted initially from some partials of addiction. So how, how did you um, first start going, okay, I'm going to be, I want to have this mindset of being mayor mentality coming from, uh, not, not everyone knows your story, so we're going to talk about it in a minute, but coming from this past history where on your darkest day in the many years ago, was that even a consciousness? You know, was that always there and then the addiction stuff got in the way of it? Or did this mayor mentality come after you've overcome some of these many addiction paths you've come through? I was a functional chem sex addict, meaning that, you know, I immediately, for the very first time I tried drugs, I immediately was a chem sex addict because the nightmares of being molested and abused all turned to fantasies the very first time I tried drugs. Mind you, the first time I did drugs, I did a bunch of them. But immediately at 18 years old, I immediately associated pleasure and relief and freedom as crazy as that sounds to say now, but I associated that with drugs and sex. And, but I will tell you this, for me, I, you know, for, I dreamed of being a talk show host and being a product pitch man, like on HSN or QVC as a child, but I ended up working with complex disabilities from the age of 16 to 34. I loved fighting on behalf of those who could not fight for themselves. So while I was battling my own demons from abuse and abandonment and you know being molested by men and women, all of that stuff was like I was angry and violent and, and living a double life and my double life had a double life. But when it came to helping people, I could just, all that went away. And I became very, very passionate about fighting for those who could not fight for themselves or didn't know that could fight for themselves. So that was always in me, but I just didn't exercise it. I never built momentum on it. Every time I would build momentum, I would shoot myself on the foot with something, getting arrested, been in jail six times, you know, but I was so good at getting out of trouble that every time I told myself I was going to change and I would never do it again, it would take me a day or two or maybe a week for until someone would come up to me and say, you're always going to be a piece of beep like your father. You're always going to be a junkie. You're always going to be this. You're always going to be an abuser. And I would take it personally and just walk away from my path because I wasn't committed to doing the work that it took to live the life that I was created to live. 
and that trauma that you had in the early days, you mentioned, let's, let's go back and unpack some of that because there's so much there, of course. And I know you've done many shows on this. You have your own network. You have your own shows. You've done various shows in the past that you've evolved through and talking about different iterations of this trauma. Um, and you help other people do shows and you get this word out now. But before then, let's go back into the early days. So you mentioned about being, uh, and I know you talk about this openly in your book, The Devil Inside Me, that we're going to address in a minute and uh, just in your life in general. So, and this has happened to other people in the world. I would imagine it's got to be one of those horrific things as a young kid to be to, to someone that you trust or thought you trusted or thought was safe to violate you in a way that you don't even understand potentially as a as a kid. So when did your first abuse issue start happening and how did you process through that at whatever age you were at that time? At seven years old, my sisters disappeared, thought it was something I did, thought that I upset them. I didn't know the truth for 20 years, I think it was. That happened, but right after my sister left, my whole world of innocence went away because that's when I started to recognize my the, my father's violence towards my mother, then violence towards us, and then also being molested by two guys. That all happened at seven years old. So the physical abuse, sexual abuse, and the abandonment all hit pretty much at one time. Wow. And then the fear of saying something, you know, because, hey, if you say anything, we're going to do this to you. And one of the greatest mind Fs of all time to me is your parents typically, or my parents raised me to be honest. But when my dad would beat the crap out of my mom or, or abuse us, my brother and I, it was mainly me, you know, hey, we don't talk about those things. Like, shh, we got to keep that a right. secret. Yeah. Sweep it under the carpet. Well, yeah. I learned how to lie really, really early. And I think about all the bad stuff that happened to me or that I did, I look back at it, it was learning to lie, which was the absolute worst poisonous thing, traumatic thing that ever happened to me. Because that lying carried up into my adult life. It got to the point where I didn't even know what was real. And now, of course, I live my whole life on the supernatural power of truth because I know how healing it is. And writing a book like The Devil Inside Me and making our movie, the, the movie that's out there is really a pitch to make a bigger movie. Um, but we didn't have the money, so we just used B-roll to create an hour-long movie that's won 11 film festivals now. But Congratulations we, on that. We, that's got to be rewarding. You. My wife's a genius. Um, yes. I'm a fan <laughs> of hers as well. Yes, she is. We'll have her on at some point. Jessica is a genius. That, that movie and book was written in a way that it is vulgar. It is nasty. It's hard to read. But that's the truth. Right. And it's right. important to tell the truth. And so looking back at my childhood, again, I can go... You know, as I've healed, I can look back at the situations that happened before I was molested. I, I can reframe my whole life now in a way that is now empowering where I can look at being molested. As crazy as, may, as this may sound, I'm grateful I was molested. I'm grateful I have HIV. I'm grateful that I was a chemsex addict. I'm grateful that I struggled with my sexuality. Why? Because none of that has a power over me anymore. And now I get to use it and speak about it in a way that hopefully sets other people free. Because they don't have to live with that secret or that shame anymore. And that, to me, is one of the greatest miracles of life, is that we get that opportunity. Well, that is powerful. And, and not everyone can get to that path. So congratulations on finding that path. And your you know, a, a fear of saying something at a young age is common for many kids growing up, whether they've been physically abused, mentally abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused. I can't imagine anybody that I've met that doesn't have some kind of early trauma about something they didn't think they were supposed to say, or it was taboo to talk about it in a family. But you had one thing after another that just kept being repeated on that 
path for you. And the truth, did you ever have a chance to confront your early on abusers later in life? Did you ever have a chance to uh, you know, confront them or address them on anything? Um, not early on, but so the I was molested by multiple men throughout a, a, a range of years. Um, and then the female babysitter thing, which I, to be honest with you, I don't know how traumatic that was at that point because I was already hypersexualized. I think I was asking for it at that point. Again, as screwed up as that sounds, I was pretty recognized being pretty into sex at eight, nine, 10 years old, like super curious about it. But later when I went to rehab, that's been, you know, almost 15 years ago, which that didn't exactly work for me. I had a, we did this exercise where we wrote a letter to the people that hurt us. And I wrote a letter to one of the guys because he was still alive. One of them, had, one of them, the, the very first instance, one of them died and later, but I was able to write a letter to the other. And basically what I got back was, I'm sorry, you know, it happened to me too. And I just was acting out what I knew. And I was like, okay, I can understand that. And I forgave it. It was really the abuse from my father that I would suggest that probably screwed me up more than anything. But I had, I did have that opportunity. And as far as the abuse from my father, I had many opportunities to confront him when he was dying from melanoma and he was, the tumors were on his brain, lip nodes and everything. He was getting radiation treatments every day. And I watched him go from this very prideful man to being humbled by what cancer can do to people. And I had no sympathy towards him, no emotion. And I remember sitting, uh, there's this restaurant called Boomerang in Oklahoma City. And he loved to go there because some of the football coaches owned it. And anyway, we're talking and he goes, how are you going to remember me? And I remember everything I wanted to say to him, all the things that he did to my sisters, what he did to my mom, what he did to me, how much I hated him, how I... I never felt that I could ever make him proud because he never told me he was proud of me. I could win championships and he never said anything. He would always tell me what I needed to do better. So I had so much hatred towards him, but I did not have the courage to be honest with him because I was still a liar at that time. And I was like, I, I gave him some bullcrap answer. And if I have any regrets in my life is that I didn't tell him the truth because it was too late after that. He ended up dying. But and I, what, I would, what, what would you about. what would you had said had you at that point been as truthful as you are now? And if he was listening to you, he probably still is. But what would you have said at that juncture after you had processed that point of your life? I think I would have asked him a question and um, I would have asked him if I ever made him proud. It, did I ever meet his expectations at the time I needed to hear it because I didn't ask those questions and I didn't hear it? I showed up late to his funeral because I was at an orgy doing coke and everything else the night before. Showed up an hour and a half late to his funeral. I made a mockery of his funeral. And then from that point out, I mean, even though I was already a chemsex addict, I spiraled out of control uh, after that in a big way because I had the money to do it. Well, that thanks for sharing that and being so vulnerable with that. And it's interesting to me that us as human beings, when we have parents, even if our parents are not the most ideal parents or they're abusive or they're harsh, it just goes back to the human condition about wanting approval and wanting to have that proud moment. You look at people that you know are on the Academy Award stage or they're athletes getting trophies and they're like thanking mom and dad or wishing mom and dad would have been in their life or, you know, their parent might. It's interesting that this creation, that the man and woman that creates a baby and then has this bond to kids, we are looking for approval, even if they have abused us or hurt us or empowered us. And it's that human condition of being able to put both of those components into ourselves of the light and dark. And I want to come back and we're coming up on a break here we have to roll into, but it's this light and dark. 
of you know behind my desk here for those that can see that are on a video we'll see a uh, yin and yang sign which is the you know the, the light and dark and it's the as above as below and that the 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 cold and the the cold and hot and the light and dark and in all of us and I think Josh what you've done is you've experienced more of the dark side than most human beings have and you're now stepped into the light in a very big way with even having angel wings behind you on your backdrop here that's uh, our logo that's your logo live <laughs> live mana uh but it, you know that that is what all of us has in human beings it's in society it's in the world it's in people it's in us as human beings. And sometimes it's darker and it's lighter in depending on the situations we're in. But it is very interesting to, on his deathbed, instead of uh, telling him how much more he had hurt you to ask him if he was proud of you. So that's very telling. So let's come back, listeners. I hope you'll come back. We are going to talk more about business, life, sex, addiction, finding the light, and then finding ways to make higher purpose, no matter what your challenges have been, no matter how dark your path is or has been, how do you still dress up, show up in the world and realize that there's still a lot of worthy things to be doing in lieu and in place and in gratefulness of all of that? So come back. We'll be right back on the Alchemy of Business show. Thank you for listening in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Alchemy of Business show. We are here with Mr. Joshua T. Berglund, and we are talking about shock, jock evangelist type topics that cover anything from God to higher power to business to orgies to chem, uh, uh, chem what was the other word you use? Chem sex addict, right? I don't want to make light of it, but on some of these new words, I'm making sure I'm maneuvering through. Um, don't Google it. Whatever yeah. you are, if you don't know what it means, go to encyclopedia. Do not just Google it. <laughs> They'll have That's a new subscription they have to subscribe to, right? Anyway, Joshua, let's jump back in. On the last segment, you were getting pretty raw and real about your early days and path of some of the trauma and abuse and uh, things that led to addiction and various things. And we were wrapping up talking about your dad and his passing on his deathbed and how you, uh, you know, you you messed up his funeral. You were late, and then the you know the day before or the night before, you were at an orgy and partying, etc. I'm sure there was a lot of passive aggressive behavior in that as your last fu to him as he was going on to physically, you know, he's already dead, but you know, to have a statement, it probably was a way my guess is to take some of your power back. Even if you didn't understand at the time that was like, F you, even if you are my dad, I don't have to be on time to your funeral. And I don't even respect you enough to be there. My guesses are some of that going on in that, even though you were out enjoying an orgy the night before. So did you ever process that with your family? Like, did you then get even more ousted or shunned from your family during that time? Or did they understand you were in your own pain and trauma and they were accepting or understanding? I did a really good job of hiding it. But at the same time, my behavior was so erratic. You know, I don't, I also think people were afraid of me because I would cut them off. And, you know, I, I, I think I shared this earlier, my double life had a double life and I was unapproachable. So no one could tell me anything. So my mom was afraid to talk to me, which is, you know, heartbreaking to say now because I'm, my mom has always been there for me. But because I was so desperate for my dad's approval, I kind of pushed my mom aside because I wanted my dad's favor. That's how desperate I was. And I don't think I consciously wanted to say F you to my dad. It was just, I was so out of control that all I could think about was sex ploits, getting high with, you know, it was really more cocaine then. I, I transitioned to hardcore meth use. But then it was a lot of cocaine, sex, multiple partners, that kind of stuff. I was so focused on that and running that I don't think I was even cognitive of what I was doing. I just couldn't control myself. 
your ego and your addiction, you know, were completely in force there. And, you know, in one of the recent books I wrote, the Iggy Principles talks about the ego and that we all have one. And sometimes when our ego is fully in control, it is about me, 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 me. And the hole in the ego of the soul can never be filled deep enough. And you talk about in your film that I want to talk about in a few minutes, The Devil Inside Me, but about this hole that was endlessly trying to be filled. And it didn't matter what type of drug or what type of sex or what kind of person you had sex with. It just seemed that the hole got bigger. And I think that's not uncommon in addiction and in undiagnosed trauma and an undiagnosed recovery. And by no means am I a therapist, by no means am I a psychologist, but I've had my own addiction issues and I've gone through my own therapy and I've gone through my own uh, 12-step programs. And I understand being in rooms with others and having my own path that it is part of our human condition. Now, some people can get away with that, that they might just only have had a life that the worst thing they've ever done is be a sugar addict or maybe, you know, cheated on a quiz and some that some that's their path and they have a different light and then some people have other extremes that maybe they have mild addictions or moderations but all of us all of us have this hole in the soul that we are trying to fill in some fashion so on your path you haven't always had uh you know you, you've had this hole in the soul and this recovery process but in your current life right now i want to jump forward to a minute for a fast forward and then i want to reverse back again but you have a life right now and there's no perfect life i don't care even when pictures are the nicest or the sweetest i've been married 32 years and have a wonderful family and life, but it's still not a perfect life and a perfect thing. There doesn't exist. Your life now, this picture that we have of you by a lake looks like and uh, with a beautiful woman, I know that's Jessica and two beautiful little girls. Noel, that's slide number five, I think. So for anybody that can view this, this is uh, Joshua's his life now in recent years, you know, has a woman that he apparently loves and has uh, in this picture I'm showing, I mean, apparently loves. you see somebody who's in a happy picture looking happily at each other with two kids. It looks like a Hallmark card by a lake. Um, And then you've got, you know, this other image that we have of you with a logo that you have, which is your business and slide, slide six, which is your live mana. So you've manifested in your current life where you have a, a good business that you're finding your business model in and making it thrive and grow in different ways. And you're helping others and getting your voice out. So you've created a business model, you've overcome various addictions. And I'm sure you struggle with that at different times in different ways. You have a family and a wife and kids. So how far away does that old life seem compared to this new life you've created? Does it seem like decades ago or does it seem like just yesterday? It doesn't even feel like my life. What God has done in my life and how he's healed me where none of those things have power over me anymore. Even, you know, with having DID, which is what I've been diagnosed with and which is, you know, it's called, it's also known as multiple personality disorder. That doesn't even have a power over me anymore because I'm in my body. I like God has really healed me and I've done the work. Don't get it twisted. I bust my butt to to stay on the right path, but I love doing the work and I do it with my wife. I do it on my own and I get to be in service to people. And so that gives me all the reasons. But really, it's been the last six months that I've noticed even my mental health has dramatically changed because, you know, one thing that you probably don't know, maybe you do is that working with people was nearly impossible for me. And the reason why I had to go all in on my dreams, the dreams and visions that I saw as a kid of this different life and better life, and I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand what those dreams and visions were until I had my that moment that my life completely changed. But that said, you know, I had to start this path alone and because I wasn't I didn't feel safe around other people because I could switch and become something that would ruin reputations like when we first met I was just like just got out of being homeless just got out of jail just 
like going, oh my gosh, okay, I have no choice. And I was starting on this path that I didn't know where to go except to put a foot in front of the other and step in faith because I had no other option. I didn't have an education. I, I'm really smart and I'm really gifted. Thank God for that. And But education smart, I didn't have it. And my work experience was not something that really fit into what I wanted to do, like trying to explain working and fighting for people with complex disabilities and media didn't really connect the dots for people or production or talk, any of that stuff. So it was a very scary road initially. But Steve, to be honest with you, I had no other option. I had to follow what was in my brain because I had no other option. I couldn't even get a job at Walmart because my rap sheet was so long. And Walmart will hire anyone. But <laughs> I couldn't work there. Plus, what? I had the, the people, I mean, had a legitimate reason to be afraid of me. Yeah, for sure. Well, you had run in such a circle of what you call the dark underworld, I think you call it, or the dark side of the world that you talk about in the, the film I want to roll into world. next. Shadow world. Thank you. The shadow world. Um, and in that, that has its own world and its own rules and its own streetwise things that you learn and use, I'm sure, of surviving, of transactions, of money, of, you know, so it's not like, I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, any uh, underworld of mafia or gangster movies. I mean, it's still a business, whether it's in the dark world or not. I don't care if it's a sex trafficking world or drugs or alcohol, it's still a business and there's still skills that have to be used in there. And obviously you've taken some of those that you learned in a really horrific way and adapted them over. But along your path in the early days, you still, along before you got too far down the path, you still were a functioning, making money guy in the early days. I remember uh, from your some of your story and then also, so you, you, and many people out there who may listen to this at some point may be like I was, I was a functioning alcoholic for many years. I put on the suit and tie and I you know put the briefcase in my hand and I'd go out to the corporate job and do it. And then I would drink heavily each night. And so you did that in a more extreme way, but you knew how to make money, right? I mean, was that on the sales side? Is that you excelled making money in sales? Or what did you do while you had the money to make drugs before you maybe had to do other things to get the drugs? But what was your your early on skills that you had? Was it in sales? Was it in tech? So for me, I was very fortunate to grow up in a home. Like we went to the country club every day. We were always going to black tie events. My mom won Mrs. America. You know, my dad was a very successful entrepreneur, but also his band had two top 10 hits in the 60s. And, you know, so he was always playing music. I mean, I had like, we were about it. We were going on vacations. We were doing all the things. So I knew what success looked like. But I also, my parents, God bless them both for this, taught me to treat everybody the same. So even though I was getting dropped off at the country club as a kid, you know, it's you be respectful to the, the gardeners, people that are taking care of stuff, the employees, you treat people with respect. And that was beaten into me pretty literally, actually. Um, and so when you were commenting about my yes, sir, and all that, that's how I was raised. And that hasn't changed for me. And and I do believe that we should be respectful to others and, and communicate this way. So even though I saw, I saw all that and that really, really helped me. But it, when it, I went in to work with my father, because again, I wanted to make him happy and we were, had a medical equipment business. And so I was very involved in every step of the way with that. And I made really good money, but I love being in service to people at 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old. Like I was making really good money. I learned how to earn it. I had the work ethic. I had all those things installed in me and also never being satisfied, which can be looked at as a pro or con. And that helped me a ton. And after we sold our company, uh, the healthcare company, I got into the skincare business right after my father died. And it was a drunk night in Vegas, crazy story. But how I 
skincare, buying the distribution rights to the skincare line that we later took public, I was already still making even more money and had more money than I ever had in my life. And that is what afforded me to go nuts, like nuts, like cocaine parties four nights a week, doing, you know, an eight ball or two bottles of tequila, champagne service, hookers, you name it, doing all of it. And I, it wasn't until it was that period after I lost everything, that is when the money challenges started for me because all this natural talent that I had, this ability, the gift for gab, good relationships, I napalmed all of that. I napalmed not on purpose, but just my behavior. Right, it became right. so erratic. And then I realized it became it became a much more challenging road right after I decided to turn my life around. And it was amazing how that worked because most of the most extreme challenges I've had in my life really happened after I turned my life around, not all the stuff before. Well, and the power of thought, that's a great point to make. No matter where you're at, at what level of your life, if you've uh, napalmed your life and anybody listening in, maybe you've crushed a marriage, maybe you've ruined a job, maybe you've uh, offended a parent or a brother or mother or sister so much they don't want to talk to you, whatever it might be, you can make this decision to change. And that's what I've learned about. I don't care where people are at in the world, what country they're in, what city, what environment. Sometimes it's easier than others if you're in, uh, you know, if you're in a impoverished country and you don't have any water wells around you. I get there are different circumstances. In, the, in most situations, when someone has the power of their mind to make up and they want to change their life and they want to get help, it's amazing how a shift can happen. So we only have a couple minutes in this segment, but what was, do you remember the day or the week or the month that that shift happened? And you said, I'm talking about the last time that it took. I know you probably had various false starts. I'm sure you probably tried stopping at various times, but on the smiley face guy that we see right now with his nice jacket and tie on and, and his nice logo and his nice wife uh, package that, uh, that you have as a family and all the things you've packaged in your life that are wonderful that you earned and you created and you've manifested. What was the turning point that was the final, final lever that caused that to be the first step that finally took? My sixth time in jail, I when I was going through booking, I told them I had HIV because I did. But I the reason I told them that is because I thought I was going to get special privileges. So they put me in the psych ward in L.A. County. Um, I was put in isolation and the prison cell was just a little bit bigger than me. I couldn't see anything in front of me or inside of me, but there were people next to me and all I could hear were their maddening screams. Going in, because I was arrested for domestic violence, this was my second time, I should have been arrested way more than that. And I, facing five years, it took me about 24 hours for the cocaine to wear off and the alcohol. And it was there when I realized, oh my God, what have I done with my life? I've been given every opportunity ever I've been gifted with so much. What have I done with my life? And I was so angry and mad and scared and confused. And like, what am I going to do? But those no the noises next to me, these madmen screaming, just awful things. And that, for me, sensory issues were a major problem, especially with my mental health stuff at that time. And so I'm begging for something to read, begging. And this is, I'm going to shorten this story as much as possible, but it's in the book too. It's the very last chapter. But as I'm there, I'm begging for something to read. They won't give me anything to read. And for some reason, I remember a Bible. You have to give me a Bible. And I, I think I saw it in a prison show once. So I was like, okay, a Bible. And the guy goes, yeah, I'll be right back. Two hours later or whatever it was, he shows up, which, because that's be right back in jail. He brings me a Bible and it was reading the Bible that initially, like, so I'm reading Genesis and I'm just laughing at it going, who believes this crap? Then I go to Revelation. Well, reading Revelations in jail is not necessarily something I would recommend. 
<laughs> but when I started reading Proverbs, the book of wisdom, I started to really recognize something about reading. When you read it and you see it, it gives you a different perspective. So I'm reading this going, my God, I'm doing that wrong. I'm doing that wrong. I'm really doing that wrong. And I go down the list. But long story short, for me, I had a moment um, after reading John and I started to hear about Jesus for the first time. And I did. I still was just like, what? He did this for me. But then I got pissed off and I started cursing at God. Why won't you fix me? Why won't you change me like everybody else? Because I begged God to fix me. I begged God to change me. Why isn't he fixing me? Why isn't he changing me like everybody else? And all of a sudden, as I'm cursing at God, why won't you fix me? And I'm not going to curse here, but I hear God say, you have to forgive your father. Well, how in the am I supposed to do that? After what he did to me, what he did to my mom, how the am I supposed to do that? Because it happened to him too. And I swear to you, Steve, when I heard those words, I just, oh my God. And I started to have compassion for my father for the very first time. And not only did I realize that not only had I hated my father for all these things, but I realized that I'd become just like, not, not just like my father, but worse, way mm -hmm. worse. And then I started to realize that it wasn't so much that I needed to forgive my dad. And yes, I did. But I needed to ask my own dad for forgiveness. And even though he was dead, you still I had to have that experience. did yeah. all of that. And it was in that moment of forgiving and letting it go just enough. I made room for God to really, really work on me. And I started to realize for the first time that all those dreams and visions that he gave me were this life that he had for me. And I'd been running from it my entire time. All I simply said that changed everything is my life is no longer my own. Take my life. It's yours. I'm, my life is yours. Use me. Use all of me. And I had a moment. I don't know. I, I, I know it is the Holy Spirit. But Steve, it like hit me on top of my head and knocked me on my butt and lifted me up at the same time. It was the most supernatural experience of my life. It sounds crazy. I don't know how to explain it except for that's what happened. And it changed me forever because all the times that I tried to turn my life around, all the times that I tried to do it myself for the very first time, I knew that I was all in for this path. And I wanted to know more of what God had for me. And ironically, end up getting out of jail uh, four days later, which with no charges or anything, which is still shocking because I should have been there for five years. I, I realized in that moment too, that, you know, this life, like the more I got to know God, the more I understand, the more I understand who I was and who I was created to be. And it became so much easier to stay on this path because I wanted that. I wanted what I was seeing in my head. I was wanting the media organization. I was wanting to serve around the world. I was wanting to elevate people into their gifting so that they could live the life of their dreams. I wanted all of that. And I was committed like no shit to that process. And I, but I was committed to that process, still thinking I was going to be in jail for five years. Right. When I right. Was you out downtown LA, I was like, well, this promise was a lot easier to keep behind bars. But <laughs> nonetheless, I was committed. That's powerful. Well, there's so much in there. And we have to go to a break. We're going to come back. But the power of, you know, turning that over to a higher power, Jesus, God, uh, whatever people want to term it as, Yahweh, Mother Nature, you know, Krishna, whatever it might be, the power. And that's why all, you know, addiction programs, AA, that are based in AA, you know, turning over to power something greater than yourselves. So taking that and then the power of forgiveness. I talk about that in my, in my Iggy book about the power. That is one of the most powerful things. 
for yourself, not even just the other person, whether they're alive or not. So you followed many of those things that opened up this energy and path. So we're going to come back and spend more time here with Josh on our last segment. We're going to learn how he turned this power of this energy that he had this life awakening through his of asking for help and guidance and turning his life over and what he's doing with his life now in media and in uh, film and video and helping others find their elevated purpose. We'll be going to be right back on the Alchemy of Business. Hello, and welcome back to the Alchemy of Business show. We are having a riveting, deep, powerful conversation. I can assure you I haven't had a conversation like this uh, on my show with any guest at this point about these kinds of topics with uh, Mr. Joshua T. Berglund. Uh, we are talking about God. We are talking about life. We are talking about change. We are talking about orgies and sex and uh, addiction. Uh, we are talking about family, and we are talking about all the extreme uh, things that you can do for fun in the shadow world that sometimes then become not so fun. So that's a lot, Joshua, packing in in the first uh, 20, 30 minutes here. So let, let's roll back around on this, th this scenario. So I was asking you before the break, what was that final, final thing? And you were giving a very riveting story about being in your jail cell and you you turned your life and power over to the will uh, to God as you knew him. And that's your path through the Bible and through Jesus and through Christianity. And I am such an applauding uh, person. I, you know, I, I term myself as a spiritual business activist, and I'm not here to profess anybody on which path they should take to spirituality, whether it's Christian or Judaism or. Um, I just applaud people that do. Yeah, uh, so I want to applaud you for you know. I, I applaud you that you found something greater than yourself, and the and the and the great workings and teachings of Jesus, and the power of what the Bible has. Whether people take that as parables or they take it as fact or truth, it's still pure gold as to a, a path and a journey as to how to live a very upstanding and worthy life of how to treat others and how to to find more fulfillment in your life. And it's all about love. It's about service. It's about realizing there are consequences for our choices. And there are other choices that we can make. So from that path, you get out of jail, you didn't do your five years. And then you said, okay, now hoo -hoo, I'm free. Instead of going back down to your next uh, orgy or to your next uh, chem, whatever you would do. Uh, how did you then next foot, next foot? And then would you, when did you feel like, how long did it take when you felt you were running in your new program? Did you go to rehab? Did you get a counselor? What happened after you used the opening of God's energy? What happened after that? The quickest version of the story is um, I, I was just committed to the relationship with God. So it was in the Bible and I was going to church and doing all of that stuff. But I the church kept hurting me. I, I would go to church and I would share my testimony because that's what we're called to do. And I was rejected. And I'm, I won't name the churches in Southern California, but they're the bigger churches going to men's groups. Never felt welcome. Always felt shunned like I didn't belong. I'm like, what the? hell is this? Like, I thought this was where I'm supposed right, to be. Exactly. This is supposed and to be it, the accepting group that all it, sins are forgiven. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. So yeah. it was heartbreaking for me. And but thank God that I, I was still committed to, to doing this path, like, because I knew it was better. But I didn't make it easy for myself. I was still battling with my sexuality, not knowing what I was. I was still battling with the temptations and the, the pull, because the spiritual high wears off eventually. So now I'm being pulled for this and like the fighting and the grimming and bearing it. I didn't feel safe going back to a program because they were triggers. Like I had so many triggers for myself. I didn't feel safe. So it all, for me, I was just like in church all the time doing the Bible thing, even though I felt nasty about it. I didn't even believe that God loved me fully yet. Still struggling. The woman that I went to jail, we both went to jail, got arrested that night. She went home back to Oklahoma, stayed in San Diego or I... 
I was in LA at the time and then ended up going to San Diego. She came back into my life. I was committed to doing the work. She hadn't done the work and didn't do the work. So all of a sudden I brought more toxic crap back in me or back into the relationship. Mm -hmm. I was on an amazing path. I was abstaining from having sex. I wasn't dating. I was just working on me and I was becoming stronger. When she came back in my life, alcohol slipped back in, fighting started, not necessarily me this time, but her PTSD from all the crap that I had did to her started to creep back up when she drank. So then we're fighting again. And it was a massive weight on me. And long story short, it it was a massive battle. I ended up marrying somebody I didn't know. Oh, crazy thing. It was a woman I was interviewing and all of a sudden I'm getting these visions and I'm like, I'm supposed to marry this woman. And I was convinced of it. And she was convinced of it too. I didn't know what to do because I'm still in this relationship in San Diego. But long story short, the night, this one night we get in it, she gets really drunk. I wasn't drinking. She gets really drunk and starts becoming very verbally abusive. And I was like, I'm done. So we were supposed to move to Las Vegas the next day. So when she went to work that next day, I packed up everything I had and moved to Vegas. It was in Vegas that I ended up, I met that woman that I had never met in my life before. We knew each other for two days and we went and got married the next day. And that's a crazy story. That in itself is an hour show. But what that did was it pulled me out of that toxic environment. Even though that marriage didn't work, it put me back in L.A. It was in LA that I was in isolation. I didn't have a car because the last car I had, I was homeless in. And I'm in LA, but by the grace of God, I was given a a guest house in Beverly Hills. (laughs) Like 90210 area code, really nice guest house. I was given it because I'd been in service to a celebrity that I'd become very good friends with and I helped her develop a product. So she let me stay in this guest house for eight months. Uh, for free. So it was in this guest house because I didn't have a car. The only thing I could do was really go to the gym. But that was where I learned to be alone for the first time. It was where I learned to be, I could trust myself alone. I didn't go have sex. I didn't relapse. I was alone. And I, that is where I really got to know God in the way that has helped me become the man that I am now. If it wasn't for that moment, if it wasn't for marrying that strange woman, if it wasn't for escaping, going to Vegas and all of that, I would have never been put in that position where I could finally just be alone and learn to be alone because I was codependent. I was the worst of the worst in that respect. So it was then that I became strong and I began to become the man I was created to be that was worthy of attracting the woman and family of his dreams. And with that path of that journey of getting into solitude, I am a big believer in prayer and I'm a big believer in being alone and I'm a big believer in meditation. Because to me, prayer is when you're talking with your higher power or talking with God and meditation and being solo is when you're listening to the world, to yourself and to your internal voice. And that usually is some kind of higher power tied into that. So that solitude of where people go for retreats or you know, that's why even when people go into rehab, it's sometimes tucked away in silence and quiet with guidance. But did that also lead you and we're, we're going to have, uh, have to do some lightning rounds here on some of these stuff because we only have a short segment on the show left, but there's so many topics I want to cover with you. But did that then combination with your faith, your solitude, someone gifting you this opportunity of a sanctuary, then I think you also have gotten therapy and other help that has helped you to diagnose or help you these things and lead through. Is that correct or not? Okay. No, honestly, it was me and God. But when Jessica first came in my life, it's one thing to be able to maintain yourself. But when you bring other people into your life, then you learn, oh, I have other things to heal. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, so how, did, 
how did you how did you attract Jessica and how did she uh, absorb your story and then feel connected and comfortable enough to marry you and now do work with you on this very subject? So I know that's all that's a whole show and we'll have to have you and yeah. Jessica back for a show in itself. But give me the mini version of that and then I still want to get into the devil inside me as we before we wrap. I was doing ministry training in Oklahoma. I left LA for a little bit. I was doing ministry training and that didn't work out either because of that church it ended up being full of crap also. <laughs> um, but it was there that I was, I, it was the solitude. I was working on myself. She saw some of the stuff I was doing on social media and she reached out to me just for advice. And, and I was like, wow, she asked really good questions. Like, I like this. This is cool. And long story short, we hit it off immediately, became friends. And as we were talking, I started getting visions for her. And I started telling her what I was seeing for her life. And then I noticed I was getting jealous. I'm like, God, I want that life. <laughs> it took me about two weeks into the friendship to go, wait a second, I'm the guy in the visions. And I, I was heads over heels in love with her. But I'm like, I'm not moving to Minnesota. I'm going back to L.A. This is where I belong. L.A., not Minnesota, not Oklahoma. Get me back to L.A. So I'm telling her the whole time, like, hey, you're going to have to move to California. Well, anyway, needless to say, I was going to visit her. I went to go see her for the very first time on Valentine's Day, February 2020. She asked me the night before, hey, would you like to come see me? I'm like, let me see. I ended up having points. So I flew the next day for free. We met. Instant love. Instant everything. And I started going back every other week until the George Floyd riots broke out. I was staying at, uh, in Bloomington, Minnesota watching downtown burn. And we decided to go there and bring food to the National Guard and some of the protesters. And, and I felt in my spirit, I'm staying. So long story short, I never went home. And her and I just have been together since and haven't batted an eye. It's been amazing. Well, here's a picture uh, that we showed earlier. But for those that have actual video access here, you'll see a picture of uh, Jessica and the and the two uh, two young girls that you now have as your own, uh, that you're your stepdaughters, but you said you consider them as your own. Yeah. So how have you, we don't have time to get into a big piece of it because I want to do ask you about the devil inside me before we close, but she's helped you. Well, I guess let's tie it in this way. You now have a marriage, you have a merged family. We only have about three or four minutes left here in the segment, but you guys have now created this artwork in your film and video and the work that you do through Live Mana and through the work that she does as a graphic designer designer and graphic artist. So how did it, was it cathartic for you two to work on this, this devil inside me and tell people, you know, give them a little infomercial about what it is. And then we'll have it in the show links at the bottom. We'll have the links to your, but here's a, a slide, the devil inside me. And then it's, um, you know, it's a book and it's a, a film video version. So give us a quick version on that and how you integrated that with Jessica. And we'll probably have to end on that note. So the big thing was we, when we were together, we noticed that we shared a vision for how we wanted to change the world. We also noticed that our gifting was very, very similar. So it was, was only fitting that we work together. And she wanted me, she was a big fan of my old broadcast and she used to watch all the time. And But when we came to this, it was time to write a book. It was time to write a book. And she wanted to be a part of it. And she wanted me, she encouraged me to go balls to the wall. And I felt in my spirit, it was very important to write a book that is not like another faith book, meaning it needed to be uncensored. It needed to be as violent as the reality was. Because if you can't feel the pain, how are you going to change? So I also wanted to write it out of respect to all of my exes and all the people that I hurt. Um, she was very encouraging for this because I would not have written it the way I wrote it. And the, the graphics that she did for the movie would have not happened this way had she not been all in. But I didn't want my exes to be able to see it or watch it and say, 
he's full of crap. That didn't happen. Oh, it was way worse than that. I wanted to show the truth so that they, if that, it gave them permission, because not that they needed my permission, but sometimes people that have been abused and hurt and cheated on and all that stuff, they don't, they, they keep it inside because they're embarrassed. I wanted to put it out there so that they, even though I didn't say their names, I wanted them to know that I recognize what I did to them and it wasn't right. It wasn't their fault. And that I was genuinely sorry. And I was going to be so honest about it that no one could dispute it. Powerful. Well, your comment, if you can't feel the pain, how are you going to change uh, is key. And you obviously have had a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain in your life. Uh, some self-inflicted, some inflicted upon you. The inflicted upon you, it's always an interesting dynamic uh, of how that affects our later journeys and paths in life. And I know that you do a lot of work now with Jessica on helping in the sex trafficking industry with kids and with others that are in that space, whether it's in with religious organizations or politics or just the world in general. Uh, and I know that your work that both of you do in this space in general uh, is powerful and, and it's uh, well, well needed. So I applaud you both on taking your pain and converting into change, not only for yourself and others, and then on using your voice in a vehicle. You have a, a great radio and show voice, and you've obviously used your talent for your own media to get your voice out. And I know that you do this for others where you help them create shows and you help podcasters or videos or content or whatever it might be. So we're gonna make sure we have in the show notes for Live Mana and your work there. And for those that wanna check out the book and the video series right now on The Devil Inside Me, soon to be coming to a full feature film, I'm sure. And uh, Joshua, any closing words? I wanna thank you for being so raw and real as you always are. Uh, and being the uh, the new man that you are and still embracing and appreciating the prior man and boy that you've been because that's all part of who you are on the light and dark side and the shadow and the light. So I know that's a balancing act, but you seem to be maneuvering through that and showing us paths and directions by how to, how to do that regardless of where you come from or what your circumstances have been. So thanks for uh, leading in a bright light way. What are your thoughts as we wrap up for the guest? Mm, the only thing I really feel led to say is it all starts with truth. Uh, truth is the ultimate superpower. And when they say to you, when you hear the truth will set you free, there's more layers to it than that. Because the truth sets the people around you free too. The people that kept your secrets, the people that you know had the secret shame. When you tell the truth, you set them free. And that is the one way that you can wrong. I mean, you can't ever make it all right from the past sins, but it does help. And continuing to tell the truth is one of the most freeing, beautiful things because secrets are poison for your soul and your spirit, and they keep you from healing. And everything that you surrender to God, he will use for your good and the good of others. And I believe that with all my heart because my life and the legacy that I get to live now or leave now will be just that is the truth is a superpower and it just, it creates endless possibilities for you and others. And it's really not as scary as people think, because if I can talk about all that crap that I talk about in the devil inside me, and I can say it with a smile on my face, that's only because truth really set me free. Powerful. Well, truth as a superpower and creating a legacy, something we all can learn and live by. So thank you everyone who listened in on the show today or viewed. Thank you, Mr. Joshua T. Berglund for your insights and your wisdom and your heart. And uh, we will look back uh, on this, I'm sure, and have to digest it in a lot of different ways. And we'll take many lessons from this. So thanks for your share. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And thank you again for listening in or viewing on the Alchemy of Business. We will be back again on our next episode. 
bringing you more about truth and wisdom and business and profit and purpose and all that great stuff. So thanks for listening in. And that concludes this episode of The Alchemy of Business with your host, Steve Rogers. If you found value in today's broadcast, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing with friends, and leaving a review. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Thursday for another episode. Be blessed and see you soon.